Okay, down at the at Bristol Planetarium, where there's a uh, special lecture being given, and I'm talking to uh, the two guys that are actually uh, leading the lecture. And can I just ask you, first of all, um, who you are, and um, basically, what is this lecture about? I'm Alan Summers. I am a poet. I'm combining haiku with with Piers Bizonet, a space historian. So it's quite a first. I think uh, Japanese haiku poets, which is where haiku originate from, would be very excited because we're combining haiku with Nassau photographs and we have an award-winning space writer as well. Rocket dreams, holding on to Little Seven's tail. Little Seven. Little Seven. Some Yorker in Russian. Little Seven. Little Seven was a rocket that very nearly destroyed the world 50 years ago. Can I just ask, where did you get the idea, um, firstly, between all of you of um, this particular lecture, and also of just writing haiku about space exploration? It seems quite an interesting thing to have come up with, and I'd like to know how. Wow. Um, the interesting thing about haiku is it's so well um, predisposed to going with other things. In Japan, they have them everywhere. In manga, they have them in their green tea bottles. Um, you name it, you see it. So we're used to mixing haiku with other things. And because the Japanese are space freaks, and I'm a great fan of manga as, as well as you know, the race to the moon, um, knowing peers a little bit, um, but both of us knowing what we do, it just gradually evolved and for some reason it just it just clicked and things click I would say go for it this is a rocket designed by what the Russians would only acknowledge as a man named the chief designer uh, they wouldn't give his name away they wouldn't explain where he worked they wouldn't tell anyone what he was doing all they did announce very quietly in a very low-key way in October 1957 is that a small scientific experimental satellite called Sputnik had been sent up into orbit. Now, when I say that the Russians made a low-key announcement, I mean it. It was one half-paragraph in the Pravda newspaper. It was only when the Russians saw how panic-stricken America was and how thrilled ordinary people were around the world that they suddenly realized the importance of what they'd done. Okay, so um, that, that's how you managed to get the, um, the the space haiku done. Uh, of course, haiku haiku is becoming more well known in this country, but it's not it's not incredibly well known. Could you just tell us something about the form of haiku itself? Yes, the um, interesting way you put it uh, in Japan, where they invented haiku, even they, after hundreds of years, can't define it, so they can't say what the form is. Uh, because our language is different, you must forget everything your school teacher ever told you. It's not 17 syllables. It's uh, 17 sound units in Japanese, but in English we keep it down to 12 or 14 syllables. But I like to say there's six second poems. They often incorporate something in the natural world. And what's more natural than space? We see it every night. Um, that's it in a nutshell. I'm always a bit hesitant about saying too much. Although haiku is a very simple poem, 
it's incredible the amount of information and books behind it. So I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment. And, and can I just ask, um, this is all about uh, space exploration, where did your interest in that come from? I think uh, f for me, um, as, as a kid, um, I still remember the first uh, I saw live, the, the moon landing. I mean, I was I was really young, and my, my parents would normally get me to bed at uh, 8 o'clock. But kids all around Britain were staying up until, I think it was 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning, to watch literally two, two men walk on the moon. So I, after that, I was just fascinated. So it was fantastic to combine my passion, which is haiku, and my passion which is you know space fact I like science fiction but there's nothing better than science fact going to Mar you know Mars eventually but the moon was what I saw as a kid Sputnik satellite solar flare picks out a rivet and, and do you think it's a good thing that um, many different space agencies uh, NASA particularly leaving the way is now looking at returning to the moon Yes. You, you can't beat the moon for a great view of the, of the Earth. I think if you went elsewhere, you wouldn't be able to see it. But obviously, the moon is just a stage as well for, for going beyond. But importantly and seriously, if, if, you're on, if you are on the moon, you can see the Earth. And it, it's a constant reminder that we are very, very lucky and that we shouldn't pollute it to, you know, to heck like we are doing. Now with the uh, other half of the uh, duo behind this uh, particular lecture down here at Bristol, uh, Piers Bizzoni, um, popular science writer, I believe. Um, popular among the people who like my books, but I don't know how popular I am everywhere else. Um, yeah, I suppose the term popular science writer means that you take, uh, you find out what scientists are doing and you put it into plain English that non-scientists can understand, which is, I think, important because essentially non-scientists are mainly the people paying for science to be done um, through through tax money and so on, or certainly paying for research to be done if it's government funded. So, um, and also, it's 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 just very important to to show the the magic of science, if that's not a contradiction in terms, uh, so that non-scientist audiences don't go around saying, "Oh, it's science is really boring," because of course, it's boring. Okay, and um, what what sparks your interest to to write about science for the masses then? Um, I think for any writer's interest in any subject is sparked by their own their own interest. So, I thought, wow, that looks really interesting. I'd like to know more about it. Um, and if you can persuade publishers to to pay pay you to study and learn and go and talk to people, that's really cool. It's like doing a sort of mini university course each time you get a a book deal. Okay, and tonight we're having a, a, a short lecture about um, space exploration. Um, so here's America's first satellite called Explorer 1, launched on a rocket called Juno on behalf of a civilian scientific program. Uh, but really it was an army ballistic missile, uh, and it was stemming from an agency called the Army Ballistic Missile Agency. So in order to uh, get rid of the possibility of military escalation in space, President Eisenhower said, look, we can't have this going on. If we militarize space, we'll all be just blowing ourselves up in moments. We need, if we're going to do this space thing, then paint it differently, put a different badge on it. And so they called 
the new agency, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and they called it a civilian agency, and they took a lot of uh, military missiles out of the military's control, and the military was not pleased about this, and NASA got itself a fleet of rockets to play with. Your, your interest in that, uh, where, where does that in particular come from, can I ask? Um, I think space is something that grabs you when you're a kid, and um, if you're particularly cursed, it stays with you until you're um, an adult. So my interest probably began when I was nine years old. Uh, I was born just a couple of years after um, the launch of Sputnik. Uh, it's October the 4th, 2007 now. We're standing in the planetarium at Bristol, at the At Bristol Complex. It's a really beautiful silver uh, sphere, uh, um, the building, and it's very, very striking, inside and out. And it is exactly 50 years ago to the day that Sputnik was launched and um, the whole space age kicked off. Do you think it's important that we don't lose sight of those early achievements? And also, where do you believe that space exploration today should be heading? I think that space exploration today um, is broadly heading in the right direction. Um, we have probes going off to Mars all the time. We've done fantastic planetary exploration of Jupiter and Saturn. We've landed on uh, Titan with a robot uh, probe. Um, we're planning now to go back to the Moon and Mars, and I think that's a good idea. The space station has been a bit of a holding pattern, but various accidents and uh, perhaps a, a sense of the public unease has persuaded the politicians that it's time to actually either go somewhere in space with the human program or else shut up shop. So they decided, okay, we've got to go somewhere. Uh, the public, I think, uh, will get more excited when we actually land on the moon again. So, yes, broadly speaking, it's going in the right direction. People think the space age is over, but actually more probes go on, more science comes back, and more humans go up year on year these days than at the height of the so-called space age in the 1960s, when really it was only a handful of missions that um, grabbed all the headlines. And... About the uh, lecture this evening, what sorts of things are you uh, hoping to highlight in it? Is it mainly going to be the history of space exploration, or where we are now, where we're going in the future, or what else? Um, I think one of the things I'm going to highlight is the strange parallels between the early space age and the age, the war on terror that we're fighting now, the age of disappearing weapons of mass destruction. Um, our politicians are persuading us that we're living in under this great threat of terrorism. But there was a time in the early 1960s when it wasn't just the, the collapse of, a, of some buildings or the destruction of a city. It was the total and absolute game over situation of the entire world that was being threatened. And in October 1962, the world came very, very close to total thermonuclear destruction. And Sputnik and the fear that it had inspired uh, was partly responsible for that. Now, I told you earlier that the space age really was about tin cans and that the infinity of space amounted to just a bit of air conditioning inside a module. But, no, the culture at large said, yep, 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 we're going to go, we're going to go, space is fast. Billy Bragg, anybody heard of Billy Bragg? Well, he said recently, yeah, it was great when I was a kid in the 1960s, they said, soon, man will be on the moon. I didn't think they meant just a dozen of them. And he was right. Everybody thought that this was the beginning of this gigantic new expansion into space. So serious uh, did the culture take this that Stanley Kubrick, one of the greatest filmmakers in the world, 
made uh, a film called 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's made 40 years ago, but if you view it today, it still looks incredibly futuristic. Why? Because it's still showing us concepts in space that are in advance of where we are now in the year 2007. See these astronauts walking around? And behind them is this big city on the moon. In the middle 1960s, that hope was really there, that there was going to be this great new expansion. Well, it didn't come to that. And part of the reason it didn't come to that is because America thought, in the late 1960s, two things. First, it thought competition in space isn't nearly so important as competition on the ground. We have a war to fight in Vietnam, uh, and we can't persuade our public of the virtues of that, and they're turning against us now. And space is less important. We, we're pouring money into Vietnam, and it's not working. Uh, the moon adventure is great, it's fine, but you know, we're not really very interested. It's not our priority. Just as Jim Webb, the early boss of NASA, had predicted to himself back in 1961, the momentum and excitement uh, that he capitalized on then was fading away by 1966-1967. And there was also a fire in an early uh, Apollo capsule which killed the crew while they were on the ground. And Apollo came very, very close to cancellation. And one of the reasons it came close to cancellation is because a lot of the politicians were saying, come on, the Russians aren't in the race anymore. They're not going anywhere near the moon. Uh, they haven't got big boosters. Don't worry about it. We're wasting our time. We're wasting our money. We've effectively won a moral victory. We don't need to risk any more astronauts' lives on this literally lunatic adventure of sending them to the moon. Well, Jim Webb disagreed, and he said the Russians are building a big booster. The Russians are building a big booster. And in Congress, they all said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You heard about Jim Webb's big booster, huh? So he couldn't persuade them that the Russians were still a threat. Now, the reason he couldn't persuade them is because he was privy to CIA reports, which he wasn't able to discuss openly. Come back. But uh, thankfully, um, most probes and uh, other missions that take place today to uh, space are done with um, perhaps slightly more peaceful intent. Yes, but we must all always remember that the, the space hardware that flies is essentially... Um, military technology uh, dressed up in a different guise. Uh, it's very, very good if we can use the military technology to do these peaceful projects because it keeps you prepared. If you do have to arm yourself one day, then you know how to do it. You know how to build the technology. But at the same time, if you are building the technology for now, it's nicer to do it for something peaceful. Um, it's really good when you can divert the energies that we might uh, direct towards destruction, towards something, towards something peaceful. And I don't think, you know, a lot of people complain about the space program, but I don't think anyone can say that it's, it's dangerous to us. Lunar orbit burn. The sunset terminator bisects Africa. Night and day, sweeping across a single continent. You can hold out your thumb on the moon and blot it all out. The astronauts saw the Earth from very, very far away. And they translated that image. Uh, they brought that image home and all of the public, for all the technical acronyms and the rocket science, all of the public could understand that clearly enough. The public could see the tiny blue marble of Earth drifting across the blackness of space. They could know in their hearts that human beings had gone out there and seen that vision with their own eyes. They could genuinely share the real truth of Apollo, the truth that made it worth every bit of the $20 billion that was spent on it. It caused a tremendous upsurge of environmental concern for the planet. Uh, it caused a tremendous upsurge in the science that 
tries to understand how the Earth sweeping through the cosmos in the solar environment and in the interstellar environment, how that uh, interacts with our atmosphere and our environment, everything from the radiation environment to uh, the magnetosphere to the way the atmosphere reaches off into space at the upper levels, the way the ozone layer works, and emotionally to the fact that if we don't look after this one spaceship that we're all flying on, there is nowhere else nearby that we can skip across to. So, um, quite apart from its scientific dividends and its economic values and everything else, Apollo was worth it just for that truth alone. And no, it wouldn't have been sent the same to send a robot. The public needed to know that someone had gone out there for all mankind and seen those things, seen that vision of the Earth from far away with their own eyes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why the space age, one of the reasons why the space age has been worthwhile.